0: I do encourage people towards entrepreneurship because I think that we need creative minds to like, not just be participating in the world, um, just getting a paycheck or whatnot. I think that that just leads us to re- a very listless life. I think that the challenge of entrepreneurship uh, just breeds a better human, if you will, um, as long as it's kind of guided well.
1: Hey guys, it's Chris. Thanks for tuning in to The Fort Podcast. Excited about having Riley Kilts, the CEO and founder of Craftwork Coffee here in Fort Worth, Texas with me today. We talk about um, the decision he made to leave his corporate job and start Craftwork, the way he thinks about his people and growing his business. He had an impactful statement about trying to live more in the moment and he said it in a way of Uh, He tends to think of how it should be rather than how it is now, and uh, that stuck with me pretty hard. So excited for y'all to listen to this conversation. Riley is never short on going deep and is clearly a huge asset to the business world and especially to Fort Worth. So enjoy. We're going to pick up on a conversation we left we've been talking about i have riley Kiltz, one of my really good friends and founder and ceo of craftwork today and we have been talking about uh being um, in the business of customer experience and customer loyalty which is prevalent in the coffee business at craftwork and uh will you just share again what we just talked about it, why even if somebody that works at Craftwork is right. Often,
0: the customer might think they're wrong, and how to deal with that? Yeah, I think um, I think the most important uh, component of what we do is I think seeing the humanity that exists in wherever Craftwork is uh, has a location, and so if people are walking into our shop, seeing them not as customers but as humans and people who have needs—not just of coffee, but they have emotional needs—Craftwork was started to draw people out of isolation and into community. We're very focused on uh, how isolation uh, impairs and affects people. And so we see every one of those interactions as an opportunity um, to engage. And so uh, in situations where customer interactions go wrong, as we were talking with about before, um, there's not really, um, it doesn't really matter who's uh, right or wrong. The reality is you have someone in your shop who's taking the time to come in there, and we want them to walk away with an amazing experience. Um, and so we really empower our staff to um, be able and willing um, to uh, delight that customer, uh, kind of even if it starts from a, a bad place, they're, they're constantly kind of like pursuing that customer all the way through until they, they leave the shop. And so um, the combination of uh, empowering our people plus uh, the core value of humility, um, we hire for cu- culture, we look for people who are um, naturally willing to lower themselves to serve the people around them. Um, and ultimately, uh, that's on us at the corporate level, um, being humble for one another, serving our team well. Um, and then uh, on, on bar, um, people looking to uh, find ways to serve one another, um, barista to barista. Yeah. And then ultimately, if we're doing that well, then it's going to spill down into the customer towards where it's very natural, you're not just telling Someone, the customer is always right. It's coming from a place of, we've cared for our team well. You know, the management team has, has cared for them well. Baristas care for one another well. Therefore, we can care for our customers, uh, in a way that makes them feel valued, regardless of um, kind of the, um, the start of that interaction. It's always around that ethos. Yeah, the
1: um, it's often that when you started the company uh, day one. I think it would be fair to say maybe some, uh, components of this culture were in your head, but you really don't know what you're going to get until years into the road. Like, how did you, how did this manifest itself? When did it become apparent that this is how y'all were going to run yourself? And like, did somebody teach you? Did you read this?
0: Yeah. Um, that's kind of, it's actually kind of a, a complicated question. Um, so that it's, I would say it's, um, twofold um, is one is that when I started craft work uh, we uh, I started craft work out of a pain that I was experiencing I worked for a private equity firm that invested all over the world and I traveled constantly I worked from a Regis office space um, and was experiencing a lot of isolation myself uh, because my team was based in New York and in Sao Paulo um, and so I didn't really have any connections here in Fort Worth. Um, and so I worked my tail off, but then uh, would you know not really have anyone to celebrate with. And so really desired to create a space that was supporting the solopreneur, the, in, the one-off individual. Um, and so I feel like just knowing my pain points, wanted to solve those for other people. Um, and then I think the old, early culture, uh, and the reason why I say that uh, it's complicated and probably not normal for a on a podcast for a a founder to recognize a broken partnership but the individual who i started craftwork with colin sansom um, amazing guy uh he when i thought of how do i want to serve our customers um colin was a longtime friend and he had a gift at um making people feel highly valued regardless of a scenario um and so when when i was coming with, with the idea I was like, man, I don't know what Colin's up to, but I want to reach out to him. And I would really give Colin credit for establishing that early culture of um, care and intentionality. Uh, unfortunately, like we weren't the right team to scale Craftwork. Right. Um, but I think that I learned more about caring for people from Colin than anyone else um, in that that early phase, and then that has carried through our culture. Um, so that's why the question's complicated. Yeah. Um. Someone who I highly value, but um, you know, yeah, one w- w- wasn't able to scale together for sure. Business. Uh... Business is messy. I've had uh,
1: partnerships of guys that I still consider some of my best friends, but we're not partners anymore. And um, often it's business, it's it's a marriage, yeah. it's it's a lot. Yeah, um, it's a lot. So yeah, I've had the pleasure of meeting Colin and uh, one of the, the nicest, most genuine guys I've met. So, so true. Um, it's uh, no surprise that you had, uh, chose to model your culture after him. Why were you in Fort Worth
0: between NYC and Sao Paulo? What were you doing? <laughs> um, yeah, so it was whenever I graduated from TCU, um, I had taken an internship the previous summer uh, for a dying portfolio of real estate assets in, uh, in Brazil uh, and really didn't expect anything to come of it, but I really wanted to work internationally. And my senior year got acquired by Blackstone and I was their analyst pipeline of one, and so uh, I got to sign up with that team that got brought over from BAML to be um, a part of the new uh, group that would be investing in Latin America. So I moved down to Brazil. I was thinking about my wife and I just got married. We were trying to find oh where are we going to live in Sao Paulo, and then uh, you know the call came of like oh actually you're going to be flying to New York a lot, and and maybe there's assets up there too. It was it was. Sao Paulo, non-performing loans in Europe, multifamily in New York, hotels in the Pacific Northwest, um, a big conference at a Waldorf Astoria in uh, Orlando. And so it was just all these assets and I was gonna be traveling a lot and it didn't really make sense for me to um, be in Sao Paulo exclusively. And then one of the partners was in Seattle and one of the partners was in uh, DFW. DFW made the most logistical sense. And so with New York, Sao Paulo, Buenos Aires on the table, I end up in uh, DFW and honestly didn't really expect to come back to Fort Worth, although I love TCU, um, I'm a big Horned Rock fan. I um, didn't get a whole lot out of the city whenever I was a student there. And so whenever my wife and I moved back here, uh, we expected to be temporary and eventually thought we'd either move to South America or move to New York. Um, and we fell in love with the city and uh, just really, don't foresee us, um, leaving anytime soon. We see, we see a lot of, what I love about Fort Worth, we see a lot of work that, uh, is to be done here and the opportunity for influence. And so I think that compels us more than any, um, uh, yeah, sexy international environment or, you know, 10 times the coffee shops in New York or whatever. Yeah. I love it, man. That
1: is part of the reason for this podcast. Fort Worth is, I still feel like we're in the, First inning of a incredible baseball game that's happening here, and the uh, the opportunity for influence to have an impact and to take this city into the next generation is crucial, and that is a big part of why this podcast started. a Big part of why we're talking because you are somebody that definitely fits the narrative of taking this city forward. Um, when did you decide to make the leap from the corporate life to do craft work?
0: Yeah it was, I was in the midst of trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. I knew that um, Blackstone wasn't a culture that I wanted to be a part of long-term, a really smart guys, but just not people that I felt uh, a lot of cultural alignment with. Yeah. And so in at TCU, I'd written my thesis on conscious capitalism and uh, was very uh, intrigued by Satori Capital here locally in Fort Worth um, and a handful of other organizations. And so I started to Uh, look for a pivot um, from Blackstone into some other uh, private equity firm. And I was in Colorado at the time and had a long drive back uh, to Denver and started just like spitballing ideas um, with my brother-in-law about uh, basically the the problem of where I was headed back to, which was that Regis office space. And so I was already in that pivot mindset. And then this idea came up of, of what ultimately became Kraftwerk and... I uh, just decided to uh, model it as what I spent, you know, 80 to 100 hours doing every week. Mm-hmm. Um, and it cash flowed. And I was like, you know what? Like, this would be kind of fun. And so I pitched it to the partners that I worked with. And they said, please don't leave us. Like, you can keep working on this on the side, but just like, don't, don't <laughs> leave. Like, we have one analyst and like, we really need you. And so they let me kind of continue to like iterate the model and pitch different people, you included. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was very, um, I, I don't think I ever expected to be an entrepreneur. Um, I wasn't someone who was like hustling, you know, uh, bookmarkers in the third grade. That just wasn't my wiring. Yeah. Um, I saw entrepreneurs as like, frankly, like lazy individuals who were like nonconformists and yeah. wanted the freedom to move. And I never had an issue with that. Um, but then as I've, anyways, we can get in how, as yeah. I stepped into it eventually, but, uh, ultimately I had the support of my wife and it was one of those moments where, uh, You're at the time I was 25 years old and had a second kid on the way and I was like it's either gonna be now or never and I remember talking with the, the team at Satori because they were interviewing me for an analyst position at the time and uh, I just told him like there's I I can only do this now I there's I could go to business school and come back to private equity like later but there's one opportunity to do this and decided to take the plunge and I'm very thankful that I did.
1: Why are you thankful that you did?
0: Um, I think that when I look at this is, it's a big question. Yeah. Um, when I look at the world and, um, see issues, um, and have a platform through which I can influence the world, yeah. I think that that is incredibly powerful and it wakes me up every day. Um, Hell yeah. and I, I, think that, um, I am motivated. I think that entrepreneurship can be one of exploitation, meaning not in a, um, uh, a illegal way, but one of basically just exploiting the wor- world for your own good. Um, or it can be simply waking up every day and agreeing that the world is not the way that it should be, yeah. and um, fighting to change that. And I think that the what compelled me about conscious capitalism um, back in the day was there's this vision for. How does business shape the world to be a better place for, for everyone, not just yourself? Um, and I think that although we're a very small part of the formula, I see an opportunity to do that every day at Craftwork um, with our team, with and um, the way that we care for them, and kind of raise their vision for what they should expect for their life. It's it's, it's multifaceted, but um, I think it's that the fact that I can wake up and have a platform through which I can influence the city and the world. That's probably
1: one of the Deepest statements on this is I think our seventh episode that was that was incredible and I think if you take business over over what's already been happening um, and what 's coming uh businesses are going to be platforms they're going to be forced into becoming platforms for the better mm-hmm. um, you're seeing companies that over in over history have taken a more um, exploiting role mm-hmm. that's the way to say it, and they're being asked by their customers more and more every day to, to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think, uh, the option is going to be there as long as we think to not have some focus on trying to have a better impact. And so you're clearly leading the charge in that. Are you still a fan of comp- conscious capitalism?
0: Yeah. I, I think that what I love about conscious capitalism is their perspective on stakeholders and how the movement of capital affects Uh, five different stakeholders, uh, being your customer, your employees, your investors, uh, your environment, uh, or community, and your vendors. Um, And so I think that within each one of your decisions that you make for your organization, being sure that you consider each one of those um, and make sure that those decisions are not uh, just favoring one or the other, but kind of seeing if we care for all five of these stakeholders our business is going to be able to be pushed forward um i think that that there i don't know the flaws to the investment model um i think that it's a lot easier for me to apply it in the context of uh, an operating company uh, than it is um w- in a like a private equity firm i think right. deals are just really difficult to come by uh, yeah. to start and when you add another hurdle I think the theory is that it either op- it reduces risk or it opens up new opportunities that are unforeseen by other people, but I'm not, I don't have enough experience to comment on that. Yeah. All I know is that deals are really hard to come by, oh, and yeah. I, and I think that uh, having that other hurdle would make it even more difficult. So, is Satoria an investor in Kraftwerk? They're not. Okay. But maybe a Series B. Yeah. We just finished our Series A, which was three million dollars, and so if we go to the Series B, then I'll be giving them a call. Awesome. Um, yeah. Um, quick answer
1: on this, and I like the way you had framed earlier, but if I'm, I'm sure you've had somebody with an idea come and ask you, like, should I start a business? What do you tell people that are like on the fence? Because I tell them, um, I don't want to disappoint you with my answer because there's no magic formula. The
0: answer is just go do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I usually like ask them if they're also a masochist and then, um, that will usually determine whether or not they want to be an entrepreneur, because I think that you have to love some aspect of pain. I, yeah. just, I like, it's not like you can walk through this and just be the shining star that like any entrepreneur that tells you that it was easier, that it was, um,
1: which I've never met one li- actually. They're, they're usually lin- in the, lin- the at least
0: linear. Yeah. Um, I, I wish it wasn't a podcast and I could draw on that board, but there's this, um, there's this, uh, kind of uh, bell, bell curve shape, reverse bell curve, and it talks about kind of like where perceptions are at um, and how you, the, there's these waves that essentially uh, you go on as an entrepreneur to where you start and you think you're like, oh, this is the greatest idea ever. And then for a very long period of time, you start delving into this like trough of despair, essentially. But everyone's perception of you is sitting still at, this is the greatest idea ever, um, but you're dealing with all of the, the back end side of that. Yeah. And so I do encourage people towards entrepreneurship because I think that we need creative minds to like not just be participating in the world um, uh, or participating in their their business, but um, just getting a paycheck or whatnot. I think that that's just leads us to a very listless life. I think that the challenge of entrepreneurship uh, just breeds a better human, if you will, um, as long as it's kind of guided well. Um, So, yeah, I think that Go, going and doing it and not overthinking it. I modeled like way too much on my, and like financial model, uh, <laughs> way too much in my early days, um, to try to get to this like exact answer. And it's just a lot more nebulous than that to yeah. be able to, um, nail it down to exact numbers and you just need to like dive in and keep your eyes up to adjust and, uh, continue moving towards your vision.
1: Yeah. You'll never create the perfect business plan. It pretty much changes day one. Yeah. Um, so you get started, um, you're now at four
0: stores. Uh, yeah. The fourth is opening in Austin in April.
1: You've opened four stores. You're now a coffee roaster, which in the early pitch to me, I asked you if you were a coffee company or a work company and you have, uh, purchased a company. So several, several questions. The first being, um, what have you learned about coffee how addicting is it Hmm. Um, and
0: what is the future of coffee those are really big questions Uh Um, and i'll try to keep it quick yeah Uh, i've learned so uh this will probably like discourage customers from coming in but i'll just say on the front end i've changed since i had this perspective whenever i Launch Craftwork. I was very heavy on the co-working side of things. That was what my pain point was out of, um, and I didn't know a whole lot about coffee. I enjoyed it, but I didn't know a lot about it. So I thought, you know, let's just serve, you know, whatever Trader Joe's serves, we can probably serve that and it'll work, and uh, started delving more and more into the coffee industry and realized, like, oh, wait, no, there's so much more here, and this was even before, clearly before we launched, and... Uh, found out what specialty coffee was. Specialty coffee is just a certain um, type of coffee um, that's above a certain grade rating. And then that led us into um, roasting. But I think early on what I learned about coffee is that it is much more um, complex and dynamic of a product than you want it to be. Um, And that's part of the magic of it is that it's always shifting and moving and aging and, you know, the air conditions, like whether barometric pressure is higher or lower is all affecting like brew time temperature. It just, it's complex. It's not, uh, magic, it's science. Yeah. And, um, the, the constant science experiment behind bar to lead to excellent extraction. I mean, was like mind blowing to me. Um, and so that was, How'd uh, you learn that? It was through first our head roaster at tweed coffee was our, that's who we partnered with to start. And then you just start kind of reading a lot. There's a lot of blogs. I mean, coffee is a cult industry, wow. especially behind bar. And so a lot of resources. Um, we went up to a few trainings to understand espresso machines in Seattle. Um, so it's just kind of like education over the course. And then I spent time on bar early on to to get a feel for the coffee. Um, and then uh, the roasting company brought a whole new element to it. Um, roastings and it's the goal of the roasting company to just serve all craft work or is it to turn into its own business serving a lot of folks so it was primarily for to serve our own shops we wanted to create a um to control kind of like what our coffee experience was like from um the actual coffee we were serving and we weren't dependent on the origins of of tweed that what they selected they make great coffee but we wanted our own spin on it and um it we talked about wholesale relationships, but um, I'm of the opinion that there's very few uh, people in the specialty coffee industry that have distinct differences. They buy from a lot of the same green wholesalers. And if they tell you something different, they're not telling you the truth. Right. And and so you see a lot of coffees where it's like, oh, this restaurant's is serving the one. Oh, I cupped that coffee too. We, we almost went with it, but we went with a different one. And I think anytime this, I guess like a pretty consistent theme is if I see... Like something that we could make money on, but don't have something distinct to offer to our customers, then or to like a, a wholesale customer, I just don't pursue it because one, I don't think it's it's wise. There's there's nothing that differentiates you one from the other, and then and then two, it's just like I want to focus on creating something that's like new, different, distinct, and and so roasting became something where we can pursue excellence. Uh, for our own shops. And if other wholesale providers reach out to us, that's great. But it wasn't this business model that I was planning on expanding. Like a wholesale coffee takes a lot of like customer care and mm-hmm. attention in order to sustain those relationships. And um, that's not our focus right now. We, Have, are you wholesaling at all? We wholesale to a few different shops, um, Black Rooster Bakery here in Fort Worth. Um, uh, Christ Chapel uses our coffee. Um, there's, a, there's a few other office, like offices yeah. that use our coffee. Um, but it's, it's something that we just decided not to really pursue. And what's great about it is it's allowed our roaster, instead of for him to be green buying and roasting and seeking new sales, he can exclusively focus on green buying and roasting and it allows a great product to, it just, be, it's been improving uh, like every single month. I, I feel like our coffees get like sweeter and more balanced. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm really thankful we made that decision. I think he would have kind of been running ragged if I had said also let's try to grow accounts. It's just right. a lot for um, someone to manage. What's green buying? Green buying, like, oh, oh sorry, buy. sorry, buying green coffee. So okay. coffee is green, um, it's, it comes on a cherry and there's two seeds inside of it. That's what the, 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 t- the you have like a, a rounded side of a coffee bean and then a flat side of the coffee bean. So the two flat sides of a coffee bean make the two parts of um, the coffee Cherry seed inside, got it, and that's what's stripped down. Take the the pulp off on the outside, washed, and then ultimately um, dried and sent to us to roast to be served in the shops. Um, so,
1: so you buy it internationally, it gets sent into Fort Worth, and then from there, y'all take it to your roasting facility, and it's up to y'all to turn it into your recipe of coffee.
0: Yeah, it's there's one other. Uh, so I think coffee touches seventeen hands before it's served to. A customer, um, not in our, but along the supply chain, um, and so there's a uh, green importer uh, to handle kind of like all of the importing uh, regulations that brings it into port, and so they have the, the relationships on the ground. You can go direct with them um, to go and and visit the producers, farmers who are on the ground, but um, the reality is at our scale which is we're uh, still a small company in in the coffee industry and we um we don't want to start going direct trade until we're at a scale where we can guarantee that farmer consistent business year after year and that's something that green importers provide is that that consistency for the farmer um rather than us coming in and wanting to slap that farmer's name onto our product but then not knowing if you know we'll buy the same volume next year or if they're it's you just have to to be very thoughtful in order to handle the supply chain in a um yeah humane and uh, thought uh, meaningful way how do you split
1: your time I, I would imagine roasting coffee and running coffee shops although they're both share
0: the word coffee it seems like two different worlds to me uh yeah roasting coffee we have an amazing head roaster um josh tire who was um, one of our first hires as a barista and he's just grown in our company um and he keeps my mind very focused on expansion of retail operations Mm -hmm. Um, and so the most time that i spend at the roasting facility my office is there so i spend a lot of time physically there but as far as participating in the roasting process is just cupping and that's the weekly tastings that we do for quality control and um, and then yesterday like um, every time we're buying new green coffee i'm cupping with him and comparing you know we're tasting five different Ethiopian coffees that all are the same process, generally from the same region. And then, um, talking with one another about what we like. And I like, I love wine. I love coffee. Like it's, it's a really fun, creative process for me in the midst of, you know, other stressful things, just pause and, 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 taste. Uh,
1: one of the things since I've known you and every time while we're having a podcast chat today, these are often how our chats are when we meet offline. You are always so proud of your people, and it's so clear how uh, intentional and important it is for you to to hire and keep good people. So this question is: if you are interviewing someone, what is your favorite interview question and why?
0: Um, that's a great. That's a great question. Um, I think that. Probably one of my favorite questions to ask, and I think it's really alarming to, to people, um, mm-hmm. is um, I tell them that uh, <laughs> I tell them that a barista position is a dead end job, and what are you doing with your life? You're either going to be stepping into something else outside of craft work, or you're going to want to advance within our company, and I want to know how we can support you in either of those pathways. Wow. Um, and I think that from a cultural perspective, it's right at the ethos of like what we care most about, which is supporting, empowering, and caring for our team. Um, but it's not contingent on our gain from them. Right. And I think that it's, uh, we usually don't get very good responses from that because I think it's just kind of a shocking question. Yeah. Um, and I probably need to learn to rephrase it because, uh, <laughs> I, th- I think that in some ways the question diminishes the role of a barista it can be perceived as that when it really they're so so valuable and so important but the the if they don't understand it they need to understand that baristas um, are often in, in like this 18 to 30 year old time frame when it's almost a collegiate environment for um, people who didn't go to college basically right. it's all these people who are trying to determine what's what do they want to do with their life? And craft work is the, the holding place for them to figure that out, and they're all sharing that. And so the, it's a very cool dynamic, um, but it also comes with um, if someone just wants to, there's very few life, uh, reti- lifetime retired baristas that did it all the way through. Um, if, if they're, in the ones who have done it, I respect them a ton, but usually there's like other ways to move up in, in coffee or to, to use the skills that we uh, teach our people. Um, to kind of leverage those into new opportunities. And are they
1: mostly lo- loving coffee, or is it kind of a uh,
0: a cool job to have? You can grow a cool mustache. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think it's b- both. Um, Someone who loves coffee exclusively is not going to be a great fit at our company um, because we seek coffee um, excellence uh, out of a care for our customer, yeah. not out of a um, infatuation with coffee itself, um, I think that that is a very good component to have. But if we ever lose the um, personal side of it, um, and ultimately that like great coffee is pursued so that we can bless someone who walks into our shop with that great cup of coffee, not so we can uh, you know tout ourselves as the best coffee shop in Fort Worth. You know right. that it's that's uh, from a place of pride rather than one of service. So um, yeah, I think I think that that. Uh, the person that we look for is one who does have that like humble servant mentality. So
1: As Simon Sinek said, people don't, uh, love what you do. They love why you do it. So it's true. People don't necessarily care that you're just a coffee company. They care why you're behind it. Yeah. Um, all of this, um, thought into your people and I know you're a visionary and I know you're expanding where, is craft work in 10 years where are you in 10 years do you have you thought that far out or are you just trying to get through
0: the next hour no you know i i feel like i exclusively live in the future which is probably one of the biggest and i'm with challenges. you on that yeah it's a really hard thing because i always um think about craft work the way it should be rather than the way it is now um the way that it is now is not um not where i want it to be um and so i think uh as far as where craft work is in 10 years, I think that I want to continue to grow craft work as long as it continues to have the impact that I want it to. Um, the second that we be start growing for growth sake or don't understand how to scale the culture that we've created. Um, I'm probably not the guy who's running it. Yeah. Um, because, um, coffee and co-working is, it's not interesting enough to me in order to, um, focus exclusively on, driving more scone sales, or leasing more office suites. Yep. Um, I, I stay at Kraftwerk and wake up every day because, as we talked about earlier, like it, it's it's a platform that I think we can influence the world through and influence our team through. And so if we can continue to scale that, I think I, I can still be at the helm 10 years from now yeah. and be energized every day. Um, and that was, in our Series A, that was a question we got a lot was, what what's the exit plan? And uh, please don't take this as arrogance, yeah. but I think that an easy plan would be to grow very quickly within this uh, multifamily strategy that we've identified and flip to a we worker, convener, industrious. Um, whether or not that would be a profitable strategy, I just think that we could get a certain scale with the capital we have um, to get acquired. Um, but that we said, hey, if you just want that quick flip, this is the wrong investment for you and we really want um to grow this company long term. And so um, my new business partner, Trevor, and me and a woman named Laura, are our, our new management team, um, and we're focused on growing this long term. Um, I think that the biggest uh, challenges of that, I was talking with a board member of Snooze um, the other day. and she mentioned that like all you have and all Snooze has at the end of the day, is, their their systems and their in the culture that they can scale that they have people it's like it's hospitality it's like ritz carlton or you know um a, a hotel that is heavy on service um and and that for me is probably where i see the biggest uh risk or fear that i have is that we miss the opportunity um to to systematize our culture so that it continued to be to feel like real authentic and be a blessing to our team and to the cities that it exists in it's just something that's like so complex and like you have every person humans i this is like biggest lesson learned from from entrepreneurship um since i launched craftwork was when i was at blackstone i view i viewed people as products um and i didn't see them as like the most dynamic asset in the entire world Um, I just view them at like, basically they were worth whatever they could put out and it's horrible. I hate even hearing me say that now, but that's, I think at my core, what I, what I believe in, how I've been valued myself. Um, but now I very much feel like humans are like the most, uh, just unique, challenging, dynamic, wonderful thing on this earth. And be given their dynamics, scaling a culture that's so people heavy is complex And I I like long for the simplicity of a um, a real estate deal that like I can go into, have a business plan, exit and say, that was a good deal. It's like, I, we, it's never, it's never over when you're an operating company. It's like, you can't until you are truly exiting the business, you're always um, moving like two steps forward, one step back and like fighting for that culture every single day. And that is a uh, really tough, uh, a tough job, but I'm, I'm really thankful to have it.
1: The irony of it is, is even if you get to that day, one day, if you do spend that much time on your people and you get to that exit one day, you often hear that even the exits kind of sad, Yeah, you're leaving your baby.
0: I've, I've heard that from multiple entrepreneurs and I believe that, um, you know, I was talking with the, uh, founder, CEO of a company called WorkSmith. Um, he's had two different exits, one went public one. Uh, was a um, uh, sold to a private equity firm, um, and it, it was very clear that like it's never over. It like once you kind of taste the entrepreneurial route, uh, you've you've you can't go back to just like being an analyst and and like sitting sitting um, where you don't have that same amount of influence. And so I know I've kind of like tasted that fruit and am likely not going to be out of it. And I think that's one reason why. Um, although it might be enticing to cash out or to like, I can't cash out right now. There's too, too yeah. big of a road ahead of me, but like yeah. eventually even say it's five, 10 years from now, it's like, what do you do? You're, you're going to go start another one of these most likely. Um, cause I'm, I think entrepreneurs are just not the people who are wired to sit on their laurels and, uh, you know, just play golf all day. Like, yeah. um, as much as I love golf, um, that's just not what I, what I believe we're wired for. And so, um. Yeah, all that to say, um, it's a long-winded way of saying, I think that uh, as long as we can scale our people, then I would love to be uh, you know, at the helm 10 years from now. Yeah, I think we're often, even
1: when we're young, kind of taught that like work is work and there's some type of negative connotation to that. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is, if, if you, even if you don't run a business, you run a business, you uh, work at a business that you love, it's just not work. And so I feel like you see a lot of people, um, like I think even we do sometimes having to explain ourselves of why we would want to keep doing this Mm -hmm. as if we're doing the wrong thing. And I would say it's just like maybe what golf is for somebody else. Like this is what I love to do. Mm -hmm. Why would I not keep doing it? Totally. Um, have you noticed through your, through being in a shop how is there anything that's like struck you of how
0: people work? Um, differently for sure. Uh, I think that I'm, I'm a pretty like, uh, sporadic worker. Like I just, I love work. That's, I, I, it's, it's such a gift. I feel like, um, that has been raised with this kind of wrong connotation that I I want to shift and change. Like anytime I'm meeting with students either at TCU or, you know, like younger, uh, elementary school kids. Like, yeah. I want them to understand like what a gift it is for us to be able to work. Um, and, and so like, if I'm, if I can't sleep at night for whatever reason or my, my kids keeping me up, it's like, I'm probably going to like do my hobby, which is work. <laughs> <you know? laughs> like, um, and, and so I, I think that that's like, um, one, one piece I lost actually, what what was the question again? Sorry. The question was,
1: how do you like just having been in these shops now and watching all these people come to work, like what trends have you noticed? So yeah,
0: I'm, I'm a sporadic worker, but I think that, um, the trend is that there's just underutilized that the new gig economy, um, freelance economy, you know, it represents, um, around, uh, 45, 50 million people. And it continues to grow. Um, And that's, it's going to represent between like 25 and 35% of our overall workforce. Um, And that is a huge opportunity, but those people don't work just like at a desk all day. They're constantly moving around because they have the, like the world is flat. We have the ability to move wherever we need to go. Yeah, Um, And I think that the, the hardest part about that is how do you, encourage people to come in and to sit down next to one another um because there's such a gift in sharing space with right. each other um when you think oh maybe i just need to like be alone it's like uh you know solitude is good but loneliness is not good yeah. and so knowing the balance between those two things i think i'm someone who isolates and that's the great irony of our companies we're fighting isolation for other people yet I can be sometimes the most isolated individual because I think that's the way I should work, but I think that's the way I was trained to work, right. and I have to like rewire myself to know, know like your work is kind of worthless unless you're um, caring for the people around you, and you can't care for them unless you know them, and that takes time and intention. So,
1: how? Um, oh shit! I just had a really good question. Uh, oh are you aware of any businesses or ideas that have come from people that that met at craftwork or marriages or
0: <laughs> there are multiple marriages I that know. have for people who have literally oh, yeah. met oh yeah there's uh, been there's been um so like yesterday i got a do uh, they go on the wall it's like a wall yeah, of fame they, there should be um so i i know um there's a, a couple that had their first date on our couches that reached out to us yesterday um, about sponsoring coffee at their wedding. Uh, we had uh, another couple, first date, who wanted the proposal to happen in Kraftwerk. Um We've had multiple proposals on top of that inside craftwork. <laughs> it's just like, it's very funny. So definitely the, the dating side, where we've got that checked off. As far as ideas that have come through craftwork, I think that um, I, I know that I constantly hear people sitting at tables like doing kind of back of the envelope or, you know, um, napkin ideas. And I love seeing that. I love seeing that dynamic. There's a, uh, several companies who have come in and scaled out of our space, um, you know, and I love catching them in that early stage because our offices really work for like one, two, three person companies. Um, we don't have significant office space um, uh, to, to, you know, have everyone in the same room. And, and so we get a lot of those like early stage, uh, in, uh, startups and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to see them grow and develop in our space. That's awesome.
1: Uh, so much to say. If, uh, if you could give your 21 year old self some advice, what would you give them?
0: Uh, it's funny you asked that cause I was just talking with the group of Neely fellows at TCU, um, who are around that age. I spoke age. to them like two or three weeks ago. Oh, no, way. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah, great. Great group of kids, yeah. Um, and I think that I well, was sitting next to Jody Settle. I don't know if um, if you know Jody, but she worked at Luther King for a little bit, um, and uh, yeah, had a private equity background, and is now working as like um, with Pizza Hut with their um, strategic initiatives. Um, amazing person. She was a fellow, and our answer was essentially like right off one another, which is I just I wish, as a twenty one year old, I was less sensitive to. Uh, achievement and more compelled by learning um, there are some classes that um, and just environments that I felt like I was just uh, yeah just very strong strongly motivated to learn but what was funny about it is they were all towards my strengths and I saw at that panel I was speaking on I saw one of my old marketing professors Dr. Moncrief and I said hey I'm, I'm still weak at marketing like and I, I totally disengaged from that class and I learned how to get whatever, uh, A minus, B plus, whatever the, the mm-hmm. thing with that was kind of like, you're not very good at this, but you can learn the words and, and, and move on. Pass the test. Um, but you're not gonna get an A because it takes an understanding. And, uh, and I wish that I would've been willing to accept a B or a C so that I could um, really understand the concepts. Um, and yeah, I think that that is something. And I also think that I, w- wish I could tell myself that you need to work with the same amount of discipline in all areas of your life as you do in your work, Um, because being consumed by your work is not discipline, that's addiction, and knowing the difference between those two things. um, Discipline is is when you um, allot time to work very hard at something, and you also are willing to stop that, to care for other um, areas of your life. Yeah. Um, and that's not just about work-life balance. It's it's about being able to pause or rest so that um, you have perspective on things. I think that if you keep operating with this head-down mentality and you're just pushing forward, pushing forward, your worldview is not shifting with the world. And so you're making decisions based upon a worldview you may have from like five years ago because you didn't educate yourself or talk with people or engage with your family or the community around. And so it's just like you're you're kind of a a fixed product in a sense that's might be producing a lot now, but over the course of, you know, five, 10 years, um, you're going to be fairly empty and completely burnt out. Um, so.
1: I love it. I tell people here at Fort every day, you have a free gift and that is that you can ask questions all day. Keep asking as quickly as possible. Every time you ask a question, you learn something new and that teaches you what the next question should be. And I think the people moving along the quickest, are those that are uh, understand that, um, you know, if I ask 10, 20 questions a day, I'm moving the ball forward, mm-hmm. or I can go through each day knowing I don't know stuff and be kind of fearful to admit that I need to ask a question. And yeah. so I encourage everybody in here on a daily basis, um, there's a bunch of people around you all day and they all know something that you don't. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that's keeping them from knowing it and you not knowing it is you just having to ask them
0: can I, can I ask you a question on yeah. that? Is that? Is that allowed? Yeah, oh yeah. Um, I, I'm curious to know, uh, filling the role as CEO, leader of 4Capital, how you take that mentality and continue to lead while still being able to recognize, I might not have the best idea in the room, and how do you continue to be a student to the people around you? Um, is, is that something that you've been able to do while still maintaining... Uh, your strength and positioning as um, a leader to where you're not forfeiting their confidence or whatnot, but having that disposition of learning? Uh,
1: 2018 for me was, um, it was kind of an internal personal goal of just wanting to be more self-aware of the impact and the way I was leading. And I think for a long time, um, you're kind of trained to think that as CEO, you can't ever be, kind of fearful. You kind of have to know where the ship is going and that you have a lot of the answers to the questions. And maybe that was just my feeling. 2018 has really taught me and what I'm teaching them is the greatest um, attribute that y'all could want in me is that I'm obsessed with continuous learning, that I'm reading, that I'm doing everything And, and ways that I show them that is I'm actually going to Singularity University on Saturday, so I'll be in Silicon Valley cool. this Saturday to next Sunday learning about the future. And there was a seminar, I went to a conference, and they showed me this chart, and it was Blockbuster's CEO in like 2008, mm-hmm. making a, st- and it's on a chart, or a bell curve, or a, uh, yeah, a graph. Uh, him making a comment in late 2008, that Netflix is nowhere to be found. Like we're not worried about him at all. Mm -hmm. And the other line is Netflix is compounding growth. And so you Mm -hmm. start seeing the curve six months after that comment blockbuster filed for bankruptcy Hmm. and that was the intersection of them on their downfall and not knowing it and netflix's compounding growth Hmm. which we all forget compounding growth on a graph is flat for a long time before it's vertical it it doesn't really there's none of this it's like here and here yeah uh which had a huge impact on me and so what i tell them is um i'm I'm confident in what I know today, but I'm also confident that I don't know anything. Mm -hmm. And having that fine balance is I'm confident in the decisions I'm making today, but I'm also confident that I have so much more to learn to serve you all. And as soon as you see me come in here with an attitude that I've I've got it figured out, Mm -hmm. go work somewhere else, run for the hills. Um, Part of you know, what I've learned, um, what I continue to learn that I thought was fascinating is back when we were kids, like the next generation kind of felt like our parents Mm -hmm. and that's because the world innovated much slower. And the things that people understood and could do were grouped in like 15 to 20 year groupings. Mm -hmm. What you're starting to find now is that same pace of innovations happening every three to five years. Mm -hmm. And, I've seen this, even when we go back and speak at college, like mm-hmm. I'm 31, these yeah. kids are 22 and I can't even like remotely relate to some yeah. of the things in their life. Yeah. I have 13 year old sister-in-laws. They can't relate to a 17 or 18 year old. Mm. And so we tell people in here, like you are going to have to reinvent yourself four or five times in your career, not because you're not smart, but because the world's either going to force you to mm-hmm. do it or you'll become irrelevant yeah. because we're moving so quick. So, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but what I've tried to instill in them is one, understanding how quick the world's moving Mm -hmm. two, understanding, um, that you go through this phase where your job is, you think you need to know everything, Mm -hmm. then you get to this phase where you start maturing and you start realizing maybe I shouldn't know everything. And then when you've finally hit maturity is when you realize I don't know anything, Mm -hmm. and that's a very positive thing. Um, so it's a learning culture here. We have a Slack channel that's all about, uh, inspiration, learning materials. We encourage people to take classes online, to go to conferences. Um, there's just a lot out there and, um, it would just be a shame. So I'm not ashamed to say, I don't know anything, but I'm confident enough to say I know enough to, to run this company day to day. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Um, what's, uh. What's the biggest mistake you've made since starting Craftwork, or what's the biggest hundred mistakes you've made? Yeah, I've made about a thousand.
0: Uh, Yeah, one of them is is what I said earlier is um, seeing people as products when we launched it, rather than uh, dynamic individuals who are yeah, just it's it's, they're they're very just complex and. And if they're just role fillers, then you're missing uh, kind of full utilization um, of them, and you're missing the opportunity to help them to flourish. I think that's a huge mistake um, that I made. I think that um, another mistake that I made, and I would say this one's kind of ongoing, is uh, we, I don't know if it was online or not, but we talked about, I like, we both like to uh, think about the way our our company should be and live five years in the future. Um, I don't spend as much time in our our coffee shops as we should. I spend a lot of time at our roasting facility. That's where I probably spend 90% of my working hours. Um, And part of that is uh, I walk into our shops and believe that basically depending on how um, the shops are running, that grades uh, me personally. Um, rather than uh, seeing the business I always saw the business as, as separate from me personally I didn't scale it on my personal brand which was nothing so it doesn't matter but yeah. there, there, it was never something that I felt like we were um, I was going to be the the front kind of star child of that and be on, be on the front lines you know uh, kissing babies and whatnot. But but yeah. now I'm very hesitant to go into our shops because I know that there's so much to improve on and when I walk in and I see something that's not working or something I don't like, it weighs on me really heavy. And so I'd rather live five years from now, which is the whole of the mothership at Obi macaroni, um, where we have our, our roasting facility. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's probably like one of the biggest ongoing mistakes that I'm needing to fix. Um, because, uh, it's, it, you're not caring for your people well. you're, when you see those problems, they're, they're solidified in your brain and you don't dismiss them. Um, and so I, I need to like grow up and, uh, learn that craftworks uh, you know, how a given shop is functioning is not a grade of me personally. Um, it's a grade of our company and its opportunities to, um, to improve upon what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, to,
1: to, I have probably never admitted this publicly. I know Jason and a few people in here know this, but like that building right out there being constructed. Yep. I've walked through it one time <laughs> and I probably won't walk through it again until it's almost done hmm. because I don't do well walking into uncompleted things. Cause I exactly the same thing. I told Jason before we partnered, I said, I don't do well during construction. Hmm. Uh, you know, you have people that accidentally break a window. Uh, uh-huh. we could have a perfectly done building and one broken window on accident yeah. and I will leave the space remembering the broken window. That's a huge weakness. Um, it's also something I'm just aware of. Yeah. So I know that's why Jason's great at that. Mm -hmm. He, uh, but to your point of, um, almost the fear of seeing the truth, Mm -hmm. I I think is, uh, I think, and I think that can be said for a lot of folks. The other part that I'm reminded of and have been through YPO is, just step back to three years ago, like you would have dreamt that you were here now. Yeah. And I think it all, I can tie it all up in saying, uh, I really feel like the journey is the destination. Mm -hmm. And I think as entrepreneurs and how we write our pitch books and how investors ask us when an exit is, Mm -hmm. is you're expected that like entrepreneurship or building a company or life in general is these series of like, wins that you get and once you get to that win you just like stand in this room and and you're in awe mm-hmm. and you've made it yeah. and what really happens is when you first had your idea driving to denver was like if i had one store that would just be a dream yeah and as soon as you got one store instead of feeling of it as a dream is like oh shit i probably need two or three stores mm-hmm. and then it was like oh shit, I got two or three. Now I need a roaster. Yeah. And the truth is you never actually arrive at these destinations. And so the journey is the destination is you're already, you've already arrived, like you're on the journey. And even when you get to the end, when it's selling your company,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: that could be a that could be another moment of like, well shit, what am I going to do next? How are my people going to be? So it, it, it hit me really hard is don't expect the, all these destinations with these nirvana euphoric moments yeah. because it's the it's the mindset that got you to leave your job and start one store is the same mindset that once you get to one store makes you start three yeah it's like start it's like little sprints
0: and and i think Ivan on a similar kind of like train of thought especially recently is uh, really all we all we have is today like we are have the relationships that are around us the people that are around us the company that we have right now Unless I choose to like savor those relationships and and step into them, then you're going to have this like life. I'm not going to stop living five years from now like that, that. That mentality. It's the way I'm wired. It's the way you're wired. That's a gift. But I think that um, you have to be willing to uh, delve into the relationships we have today. Otherwise, it like you said, you're gonna you're gonna get to that that moment, and it's just gonna be something else, and it's always gonna be something else. But uh, today is what we have tomorrow is, is just completely uh, something intangible. And yeah. so I think that really savoring, uh, every day, it sounds like I'm a, I don't know, some type of motivational speaker, but I, yeah. that, I, <laughs> I, I, I believe, I believe that it's, it's really important for entrepreneurs to understand that because like you said, like you get to that exit and like, okay, it's cash in your bank account. So what? like that m- money, money is like, fading away. Like it's, it's, you can't take that anywhere with you, you know? So yeah. it, it's just like, it's all kind of like empty. And so I, I feel like you, you really have to just like s- savor and value the day that we have. And the more we can do that, I think that the more uh, impactful our businesses can be for the world.
1: Yep. Charlie Munger, who I read a lot of says, uh, if you want to be happier, continue to minimize your expectations. <laughs> and it's, Pretty true. I mean, if I'm always living 10 years out of where we should be, and therefore it's easy to not be happy that we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like in golf. If my expectations are to shoot a 70, and mm-hmm. I don't shoot a 70, I'm not going to be happy. Yeah. If it was just an 80, I yeah. would have been stoked. Yeah. Um, and so it's always like keep keep them in check. Um, I'll wrap this up in just a little bit there. Uh, I'm looking at this book I gave you and a ton of the notes I have was, uh, your comments on treating people's people. So I just want to like give you a two minute summary of yeah. what you're going to read. I so, uh, this book had probably the largest impact on me of any book I've ever read. It's a very easy to read book. And what it talks about is the act of self-deception and self-deception is when you have a problem and you don't know it. And you have a problem, and I have a problem, and Johnny in here has a problem, and everybody has this problem. And what it does is it talks about, you either treat people from inside the box or outside the box. And when you are inside the box, you treat people as objects. And when you are outside the box, you treat people as people with feelings and emotions. What the the meat of the book is, what puts people inside the box? And that is the act of self-betrayal mm. and so it goes something like this I'll, I'm going to give you a, an example from the book. Uh, me and my wife had a had a child and one night the monitor was on and child was still young and at 2 a.m the the baby started crying and I the husband uh, woke up and uh, my immediate Immediate reaction as a human being was, I probably should get up and go get that mm-hmm. tend to that baby. But immediately, I said, subconsciously, nope. I work in the morning. Mm-hmm. I am a hard worker. I need my sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, you know, I'm, a, and because of all those things, I'm a good husband and I'm a good dad. Mm-hmm. And as I'm going through this in my head, I'm starting to look over at my wife who hasn't moved yet. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if she's awake or if she's asleep, but the more, uh, I begin to tell myself that I'm a good dad and a good husband and I work hard and I need sleep and I'm looking at her, the more I start thinking, well, she's being pretty lazy and why doesn't she get out and do it? Mm -hmm. She's the mother. Is she being a good mom? Mm -hmm. And all of this takes place in about a 60 second point of view. And I realized quickly that she was asleep the entire time. Hmm. The act of self-betrayal puts you in the box. So the moment I decided that I was not going to get out of bed and help that child, I self-betrayed myself. I knew that was the right thing. I chose not to do it. Mm -hmm. What happened from there is I began to inflate my own virtue while demeaning hers, turning Mm -hmm. her basically into an object. Mm -hmm. So how do you think I'm going to talk to my wife as soon as she gets up, like a person or like an object? So if you take that and extrapolate that into the business world, the right thing to do when a customer comes up to a barista mm-hmm. and and is not happy on the barista is, like you said, to t- to treat them like a human that mm-hmm. has feelings, but it's very easy for that barista to take that to heart mm-hmm. and immediately have that moment of, I, sh- I shouldn't, I should not, uh, be hateful towards the person coming back. Mm-hmm. But let's just say an untrained barista immediately says, screw that. I'm telling this customer exactly. Mm-hmm. As soon as they self betrayed their self in doing the right thing, they're now put themselves in the box mm-hmm. and they are going to treat that person like an object while justifying to themselves yeah. while they're doing it. Yeah. I'm a hard worker. Yeah. I've been here since 7am. I've yeah. smiled at every customer. Yeah. That idiot doesn't know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And you create these spreads. And so what that book teaches is, When you know you're getting in the box and when Mm -hmm. you're out of it um, and that you carry boxes around with you in your life, there's probably relationships you have in your life uh, that if you really kind of run them through your head, you probably treat that person uh, from an inside the box attitude. And what it all really boils down to, even the simple act of asking yourself, am I outside of the box right Mm -hmm. now? Inherently puts you outside of the box, mm-hmm. and it is hard to keep grudges or to keep anything because you know the right thing to do is to apologize mm-hmm. or to look inside and change your own character. Yeah. But as as long as you continue to say, "I'm not going to do that," I'm staying mad at this person. Yeah. Yeah. You continue to self betray yourself, which you have to justify your self betrayal, yeah. so you'll continue to inflate your ego and find ways to poo poo on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, And everything you said was that you train people to treat people like people. Mm -hmm. And that book specifically just talks about how cultures can be created where everybody's in the box. Mm -hmm. People are okay being told tough things. Mm -hmm. So I could tell you, uh, Riley, you're an idiot for not getting that assignment done that I asked you to do. Uh, It's probably treating you more inside the box. Or I could just say, Riley, you know, I care about you a ton. Uh, I'm disappointed that you didn't get this done. And I'm going to... you know, I hope you get it done next week. Mm-hmm. I think you still leave in both situations with the feeling of like, damn it, I need to work harder. Yeah. But in the first situation, you probably never wanna walk by my office again. And in the second, you probably feel more compelled to to deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we often find is that when having tough conversations, we treat people more as objects than as people. Mm-hmm. And the truth is people will work harder for you if you have a difficult conversation from a personal standpoint than as an objective standpoint. Mm-hmm. And, um, that yeah, book, awesome. honest to God, changed my life. It's very in line with what you're saying. And cool. I hope you'll read it.
0: Cool. That's awesome. Thank you so much for it. Uh, okay.
1: If you are in Fort Worth, Texas, go to the foundry district, go to their location on camp Bowie or go to Magnolia. Riley has had a, uh, has been a big inspiration of mine. We've known each other f- almost four years now. Um, he is, a thought leader beyond uh, many that I've talked with and I know will be successful. If you haven't had a chance to meet him or, or try um, the craft work experience, I would really highly encourage you. Fort Worth is lucky to have you, um, and I really appreciate you coming on my podcast. Thanks, Chris. Really Thanks. appreciate it. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thanks for listening today. Be on the lookout for new episodes coming soon that we're really excited about. If you'd subscribe to us on Apple, or Spotify. And if you really love to give us a five-star review, we'd be super grateful. Have a great day.